Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Kaveh. <laughs> and I'm recovering from that intro. I'm Sophie. Thank you so much, Dr. Sophie Balsor, for joining me today as my co-host. Um, Sophie, uh, I should probably introduce the show. I've been told I do a really bad job of introducing what the show is at the top of the show. So okay. let me ask you, because I don't have a catchphrase. If you were to sum up this show uh, in maybe one or two sentences, what would you say? Um, after having listened to the show for about a year, I'd say it is, as you say, medically adjacent, but mm-hmm. not too heavy on the medicine, just enough to intrigue the uh, general public as well as people who are healthcare providers. I don't know if that's a trigger word for some mm-hmm. people. Um, but I love how the guests just, they all touch health in some way, but they're not all just like physicians or nurses or, you know, um, medical assistants, just a a hodgepodge. And I love that. That's great. That's good. Can we put that on a shirt? Can somebody put that on a shirt? I'm going to see if I can make that happen. Um, I like that. Uh, so thank you for joining me, uh, today. Um, we have two guests coming up. I'm excited to talk to them before they come on though. Can I, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you heard of the term ghosting? I have, of course. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding of it is it's like when you're either in a relationship, like you're dating someone or in a friendship, it also applies. And I've also seen it applied in the professional setting as well. When (laughs) somebody disappears, Mm. they'll return your phone calls. They'll Mm. return your texts. I mean, your voicemails just the other day, I was like, like a real sicko. I'm going to leave my friend some voicemails today. And like, er, you know, everyone was giving me a hard time for it uh, because young people do not like getting called on the phone. Not no. at all. I don't know if you noticed that. So that's what ghosting is. Let me ask you, have you ever been ghosted before in mm. the past or any time recent? Um, maybe a soft ghost, mm. a friendly ghost. <laughs> Casper, do you? You got Casper? Somebody Casper. <laughs> but then they returned. They returned. So it's all good. So did they give you a reason for it? Were they like, sorry, I was in a weird place or whatever? No, we just let it be. So it was a friendship. It was a, like a, yeah, a, was a friendship. Friendship. A friendship. I think in the traditional sense, I mean, as a geriatric millennial, right? Yeah, I'll say yeah. in the traditional sense, I always thought about it as dating, but now that you brought it up, yeah, I guess that can happen in friendships. Professionally, that seems kind of... Yeah. I, I'm curious so, to hear about that one. <laughs> very red flaggy if that happens. Um, but yeah, I, I I guess I'm... I should probably do a whole episode on it, like weird relationships, enmeshment, toxic relationships, all that stuff. But I guess the, the first question I have is, how do you 
deal with uh, how would you recommend people deal with a ghosting if they get ghosted either in a relationship a romantic one or a one regarding friendship mm. i mean there's always something more there right i mean i think ultimately we really don't know what's happening in people's lives as much as we think we do or we like to think we do so i think giving people the benefit of the doubt is probably very helpful i think it's very um you know, I, I'm not I'm not one for confrontation either, I'll say, but generally I think the ghosting must be for some reason. So I, I do like to give people, you know, um, I do like to put a positive spin on things that it's probably for a very good reason. And if they like to return when they're ready, they they will they will do so. Jesus, you're such a bigger person than me. <laughs> <laughs> Just get fucking pissed. <laughs> and then here's the thing. I also imagine you're the kind of person where like, if someone doesn't respond to you, you probably like how many times you try to, to reach out to them before you give up. <laughs> I mean, it definitely depends on how invested I am. If it's like a romantic relationship, I mean, thankfully yeah. ghosting was around when I wasn't around when I was dating, but yeah. if it had been, I mean, I mean, you look a little bit much if you just kept pursuing and pursuing and they're trying to give you a message. I mean, so what two, two times, one time, <laughs> a couple times, couple yeah. times. No, I, I will. Yeah. I will hunt that fucker down. And be like, <laughs> What, what, what happened? <laughs> I mean, somebody's phone might have broken. Maybe they didn't pay the bill. The dog died. Oh, there's always a good reason. There's always it's. Anyways, all right. Well, we'll 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 deal with it at one point with a trained psychologist or something. Otherwise, um, yes. So. Let's let's get started with our wonderful guests that we have coming up. We have Dr. Kali Hussein and we have Dr. Imani McElroy, and uh, we're going to talk to them about a number of things. Thank you so much to Nadine for help with production. Thank you for everyone who has rated and reviewed the show on iTunes. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review us. Do all that fun stuff. Send us any questions you have. Find us at Twitter at the House of Pod. And uh, Dr. Balzora, where can people find you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Sophie Balzora MD. It's phonetic. And uh, you can also find me at uh, the Association of Black Gastroenterologists and Hepatologists at Black and Gastro on Twitter. Highly recommend following both. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Today, we have two very special guests. We have Dr. Imani McElroy, general surgery resident, and Dr. Kali Hussein coming back to join us, trauma surgeon from Arizona. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Dr. McElroy, thank you for joining us. This is your first time on the show. It's very exciting for, for you, I'm sure. It is. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much for being willing to take me on. Oh, my goodness. No, I'm... I'm very happy to have you guys. Um, okay. I, I want to get right into Are you guys? I'm ready to get right into it. Are you guys ready to get right into it? Let's go. You know. All right. Okay. We're going to start way back. This is one of my favorite segments of the show where I bring on three much smarter, more talented and accomplished women. And then I mansplain women's history to them. challenge accepted (laughs) okay so let's start back in 1849 elizabeth blackwell the first woman to achieve a medical degree in the united states uh at the time it was a pretty big deal right afterwards it led to a, a a brief growth in women in medicine 19 women only medical college opened up at that time unfortunately by the 1950s due to all the weird stuff happening in the 1950s, glorifying domesticity and a lot of other factors, that number, those numbers dropped pretty dramatically. So by 1949, 1950, only about 5% of entering students to medical school were women. So in the 60s, with the passage of Title IX, the Higher Education Act, which uh, prevented federally funded educational programs from discriminating on the basis of gender, those numbers started to increase. 
1974, those numbers went up. So about 22% of that time were women. Today, a little bit over half of medical students are women. And Dr. Balzora, Sophie, you recently uh, were on a paper regarding this. I know that. Um, so I'm happy to get you to chime in on that. But that being said, at this point, women make up only about 34% of physicians in faculty positions. And that gender parity is even worse when you look at other things like how many women are CEOs of hospitals, only about 18%, and about 16% of all deans in the, in the United States are women. <laughs> when you look at these numbers, it's kind of crazy, right? Senior authorship, 10%. Editors-in-chief in magazines, 7%. When you look at like the, the medical journals that we look at. So I, I guess my first question for you guys is this. Do you feel like when you were going through medical school and as you're going through residency, do you feel like you're being mentored or led differently because you're a woman? We'll start with you, Dr. McElroy. Um, I would say there's yes and no. I think um, there's a caveat for everybody listening. Um, I'm black, so I think that also plays a role in that. Um, but I definitely do think that as the, there has been a shift in the number of women, um, I definitely think that most of my mentors have ended up being female for that reason. And I think it's because they understood and went through a position where they um, were not in that same position to have as many mentors. So I think I have a ton of mentors. And I think especially, at least in my institution, women are very good about trying to mentor the young female residents. And so I definitely have a ton of mentors from that sense. And I think um, with that being said, you know, it makes it easy to kind of mentor hop for at our program. I think the caveat of me being black or African-American, depending on how you identify, brings an interesting twist in it because people still aren't certain of how to navigate race. And so that creates a different dichotomy for me, even from what I've noticed with some of my white female colleagues at work. Um, especially when you have situations where you have, you know, civil unrest and racial injustice in the news, it becomes this very, like, treat her with, like, you know, kid hands, and I don't know how to walk about this, or, you know, she's a clearly voiced, she's upset on Twitter, but, like, I'm just going to stick my head in the sand and pretend I don't see her. Um, and so I think, you know, when you have any level of otherness, um, it can create this, this dichotomy or this relationship with your mentors that can be a little bit hard to navigate. But I think when you start adding on those piles of intersectionality, um, that's when you start getting a little bit into the weeds. Um, and, I, and I have great mentors who are willing to dive headfirst into all of those things with me and, and still be like, I'm here, you know, how can I be of service? And, you know, how can I support you? And that's been phenomenal, but I, and I, and I don't know if that's happening elsewhere. And I really hope it is, but with some of the colleagues I've had with conversations I've had with my colleagues, um, I know they don't always feel the same. So I think it creates a very unique um, situation for, for women within mentorship and then anybody with any level of intersectionality from there. Dr. Hussein, I saw you respond a couple times there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Imani um, hits it, you know, the nail right on the head. When they're, you know, being mentored as a woman is one thing. When you are, when you have multiple um, other identities, the whole intersectionality makes it very complicated. Um, my, my particular experience, yes, you know, I'm a woman, but I'm also black. I'm also Muslim. I also wear a hijab. So the mentoring that I got was that by pursuing surgery that I was um, on the way to, um, you know, I was going after something impossible and that I should aim lower and that the expectation that I, I'd be accommodated in a field that's very male dominated, that's very white, um, that's not very, you know, conducive to, you know, motherhood and things like that, that there was no going to be advocacy, right? Nobody was going to stand up on my behalf. Nobody was going to mentor me on how to do it. And when I was doing it, it was, how dare you, mm -hmm. right? So the mentorship that we get is to stay in your lane, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So as, as someone who is, we say underrepresented, but 
I like to refer to it as kept out. It's it, that's how we we maintain the status quo is we tell people this is your lane, you don't belong in this. And so the, the advice that we get, the mentoring that we get, is to be steered away and to be kept out. Mm-hmm. And Dr. McElroy, you're earlier in your career in your in your training in surgery. Um, and it sounds like you're you feel the same sort of thing. When when you say that people don't know how to handle you, you're mentioning they didn't know like um, what to say to you. Is it is where's that coming from? Is that coming from a place where where people just don't have the language? They just don't have the comfort. They don't have the ability to sort of uh, to address privilege. What where's that coming from? Um, I think it depends on the person. I think for some people, it's um, you know it's uncomfortable to talk about things and to and to acknowledge racism and uh, systemic racism and oppression and discrimination and the historical exclusion is, I, I agree with Dr. Sane on that one. It's, we're not underrepresented, we're historically excluded. Um, and so I think some people are still like, they are, they're willing to navigate that and they're trying to figure it out. And, you know, some are going to jump right in and be like, I'm going to get it wrong, but you know, I'm going to do my best. And I appreciate those people. I also appreciate the people who like, you know, come to me and they're like, they're clearly trying, Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a level of some people are just too afraid to try. Um, and it's, it's frustrating. And then I think there's also another group of people because it doesn't affect them. They just don't care. Like, and, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that is, that's a large chunk within medicine, especially we're told in the ORs, you know, you don't talk about politics. You don't talk about this, just like the dinner table. And I'm like, well, why not? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. These are things that directly affect me. And if you're operating on someone from a low income background who comes from a minority group and, you know, is at risk for all these things, you're sitting there operating on them. Why aren't you talking about those things? Why aren't you staying educated? You know, there's the art and medicine of science, but there's also the very human aspects of it and the parts of the, the OR that meet you on the outside that are going to affect your patient outcomes. So if you really want to be a great surgeon, you've got to face those things head on. And, you know, I think in this transition of doctors being like, you listen to us and do as we say, is that transition is very much changing and it's becoming a much more patient oriented and this is a team situation. Um, we need to get off our pedestals and meet our patients where they are and understand what's putting them in these positions. And we have to humble ourselves in that, you know, and I think there's a little bit of an ego left within medicine that that's is definitely affects that ability to not listen. Well, I mean, a big ego, actually. <laughs> yeah. You know, I guess I'm trying to be a little, little PC, but yeah, you don't, you don't you know, have there's... to on this show. Your, your, your attendings aren't listening. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, and, and, and it affects, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, jump off of uh, what Dr. McRoy said. It affects the decisions that we make, right? Mm-hmm. In patients who are, who are saying, oh, they got shot up. You know, what's the point of us, you know, continuing, you know, to keep going versus, you know, someone else who you're like, oh, they come from a good family. The father does this, the father does that. And we should, you know, keep moving and, you know, doing all these, um, taking all these measures the decisions that we make on our patients who are especially underrepresented, who, who are um, um, from, uh, you know, uh, low income backgrounds, um, it impacts politics and racism and everything else impacts the decisions that we make. So unless we bring up those issues and say, hmm, why are we pulling the plug on this young patient here versus we're doing everything possible under the sun where, you know, we're looking at doing ECMO on someone who clearly doesn't meet criteria, it impacts every decision we make. So of course we need to talk about politics. Of course we need to talk about civil unrest and social justice. I mean, just the fact is also we're human. I think that's the important thing to think. It's like when I'm coming to work every day and expected to take care of my patients and my heart is in the streets because, you know, someone who looks like me or could be related to me was lynched on live TV. (laughs) Like that has an effect on me and the ability to take care of my patients. I'm going to show up and do everything in my power to still be there for my patients. But at the end of the day, I'm human. Like, and that needs to be acknowledged. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, both of you have brought up such salient points and it's a lot to digest. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think there's always this issue that we have to make the case that it's always about the patient, but, you know, it is about us too, right? Um, I think that, um, as Dr. McElroy said, like we are human, right? A lot of it is about our 
self-preservation about how we feel. And if we are not well, we can't take care of our patients. So, I mean, I'm curious for, for both of you, like, based off of what you said and based off of my own experience, number one, like, how do you seek out mentors? Do you look for people who may look like you, at least on the surface, or do you, or do you seek out people who may be different from you, either from inexperience or how, you know, how they identify gender-wise, how they identify race-wise, religion-wise? Um, and what do you think about the idea of mentorship versus sponsorship? Because I think for me, I've benefited more in my career from sponsorship than I have from mentorship, I'll say. Um, well, the first thing is going out to reach out for mentors who look at me, like look like me in my institution. I'm, I look like me. So um, <laughs> yeah, I can't, can't reach anybody who looks like me in that sense. Um, right. I think for me, I think there's the way I approach mentorship and sponsorship is, is kind of twofold. One, um, although I walk through this life in an intersectional way, um, one of the biggest things that I reserve my right to do is to fall in love with medicine and science the same way that my cis white, um, hetero male res co-residents do. They get to focus on their love of the pancreas or the aorta or whatever. And so they get to pick mentors based on that. And so one thing that I do is you know, if I see a mentor that is interested in my field, I'm going to approach them and be like, what can I learn from you? Now, if they have some funky reaction to whatever reason, I'm not going to stick it out. <laughs> like, I'm not going to torture myself. And I did that in medical school. I tortured myself with one of my mentors because he was my, my ticket to the next level. Um, and in many ways, a lot of the ways that I ended up here at the institution I'm at was in spite of his guidance. And so I learned very quickly that, you know, I, you know, if they're not going to mentor you based on your race, religion, creed or whatever, like they're just not going to mentor you and they're not going to be a good sponsor or mentor. Um, and then I also find that there's other ways in the sense of like, just not so outside of just the clinical aspect of it, there's still the aspect of like life uh, mentors that I have and people that I just kind of admire and look up to. And so, um, I believe in having mentors of those types. And so I will approach those same people kind of in the same way and being like, I feel this connection with you and, you know, we work together well. And then, you know, I just, the way I treat mentors is kind of like, like, be like, you're my friend now. Okay. We're friends. You're my mentor. Mentor me. Um, I like, that's just how I am. I don't, I'm so incredibly awkward that like, I don't know how else to make friends. So I just kind of like stand next to people and then they befriend me and then like, then they mentor me afterwards. Um, incredibly awkward. That fits yeah. with medicine. Okay. <laughs> I think, I think you're in the right exactly. place. R real quick. Uh, Sophie, can you explain the difference between mentorship and sponsorship? Sure. So, I mean, you know, generally sponsors, they open doors, right? They are a connection to people who you otherwise would not meet. They are about networking. They know people and they will get them to know you. So, I mean, ultimately they're putting their reputation on the line in order for, to open doors for you. Right. I think mentorship is more um, guidance, right? It's more telling you what, path might be right for you or what opportunities may be good for you, obviously constructive criticism, all those sorts of things. But, and sometimes, you know, mentors can take on a sponsorship role, but generally they are two separate entities. Um, and I, and I find, and I think that some data actually shows that for historically excluded groups, sponsorship um, is incredibly critical because I think that when you think about networks and you think about who knows who, um, and you think about the majority of folks who are in medicine, um, you know, they have a lot of those networks that maybe underrepresented groups in medicine don't have. So I think that that, for that reason, sponsorship is incredibly important. Even and more important. Yeah. So it can be even more important in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think that um, as you advance in your career, maybe get a little bit older, um, particularly I think in academics, um, you know, as, as important as mentors are, those sponsors, you know, true sponsors um, can be, you know, just phenomenal for your career. I was going to say, I was just to follow up the, the how I find sponsorship and, um, you know, and some of that is it's come from actually this year since I've been a pandemic research kid. Um, you know, Twitter has been great for meeting and connecting with people. But when people reach out, I've been proactive in responding to their messages. And when I've gone to conferences and they've asked to meet me in person and, and talking with them and um, 
learning how to give an elevator pitch, which is very hard for someone like me, who again is awkward and actually quite shy in real life. Um, but like learning how to talk to them. And when they ask, like, what can I do for you? And, and understanding that, you know, this is what, how they're attempting to sponsor and they're attempting to reach out because they understand that I have something to say or that I'm talented or, you know, they've seen my work and they want to be able to do that. So, um, I don't approach them necessarily in the same way of like, you know, like I'm, you know, cordial with them and I, but I touch base with them every once in a while and be like, Hey, I'm looking for an opportunity like this. And I, I just let them know what I'm interested in, how things are going. And, you know, and when they do approach me with something, um, I make sure it's in line with what I want to do. Um, and knowing when to say no to things as well as I think is also important and important when dealing with sponsorship is because people. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. People will nominate you for stuff. It's just whether or not it's in line with what you want to do. And yeah. so I think there is right. some respect of being able to say like, I'm very flattered, but like, this is actually, I don't either have the time to do this right now, or this is not particularly something I want to pursue at this moment. Um, but thank you for thinking of me and continue to think of me. And so like, that's kind of how I, I deal with sponsorship when it's not directly with one of my mentors. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good point. You don't want to get stuck going into something your heart's just not in just based on the fact that that was what was something someone actually went out of the way to be kind to you you know, yeah. to, to actually do the right thing. Dr. Hussein, do you feel that you mentor women differently now than you mentor men? Absolutely. How so? So I mentor based because I, I mentor women differently and I mentor um, um, people with multiple um, identities and intersectionalities differently because the idea that we're all walking into a level playing field, that there is meritocracy um, is a lie. And that a lot of women come in expecting that, that their hard work eventually pays off. Um, and that's not the reality that, I, um, that I've seen. Um, the way I was mentored, um, I was mentored away from all the things that I wanted. Um, I, um, had constant negative feedback um, and no, like very minimal sponsorship to speak of. So the way I mentor now is um, very different. And the way I mentor is I tell them what the reality is. I tell them what they're walking into and I teach them how to overcome those things. So for example, when it comes to, you know, um, uh, like that person, um, Dr. McElroy had a, um, uh, in, in medical school, I had a, I had a similar um, mentor when I was in residency. Uh, no matter what I did, no matter how well I performed, it was, um, I would never finish a residency program. I, you know, cause I was having kids and after I finished having kids and, you know, um, past my boards, it was, Oh, you're not going to get a job. You're not going to work full time. Um, you know, you're not going to be productive. Um, it, 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 all this constant, you know, negative feedback. And so one of the things that I've learned along the way is, um, the relationship you have with your supervisors, your mentors, your program directors, your faculty, um, that relationship is defined, right? That relationship is there for a purpose. You're there to accomplish something. What they feel about you as a person, your future, what you can and cannot accomplish is their opinion, right? So in that situation, what I've learned when I teach um, my mentees is 
in that relationship, what, you know, um, whatever um, interaction you guys are having, you're there to get particular instruction from them, whether they're teaching you how to operate, whether they're teaching you patient care, that's what you're there for. Everything else is extra, right? It's, it's how to process feedback. And, you know, people are taught how to give feedback, but nobody's taught how to, how to receive feedback, how to receive negative feedback, what to do with it, see if it's useful to you. And if it's not useful to you, and if it's just mean and harmful, how to discard it, right? So a lot of my mentorship is based on that. How do you go into um, a place where you are getting mentored? You are, you have someone supervising you, but they don't have your best interest at heart and they're not going to supervise. They're not going to sponsor you. And their mentoring is probably going to lead you astray. How do you get what you want out of that relationship to keep, to keep you more moving forward. And how do you get all the negative things and not internalize it, not make it about you, not accept their negative image of you. How do you not take that in and, you know, make you feel less of yourself? Uh uh You're, You're absolutely right. I've never thought of it. We've never been taught how to take feedback because you're sort of taught that any feedback means you failed in medicine and I'm sure a lot of other, you know, high-end professions, there's there's a, this sense that if you get any feedback, it means you have failed. If you're not a hundred percent, you're zero. Um, right. So I'm I'm actually I, I I'm teaching um, a course on feedback um, because I think that's one of the main things that it, it, I I think it should be taught somewhere, college, high school, whatever. But even in in in, in our professional setting, we're not taught this very well. And I teach it as part of my taking up um, course, uh, taking up space course. And what it is, is basically we, we um, a majority of uh, women compared to men internalize feedback, right? Especially when it's negative feedback, we internalize it. Whereas men tend to shrug it off, right? And um, there's an article that I was reading in um, Harvard Business Review. Majority of the negative feedback that people get, it actually is not very helpful. Negative feedback, especially in medicine, we, we see this a lot. It's supposed to motivate you to do better, but it actually does the opposite. So when people get negative feedback, what they do is they avoid the person giving them the, the negative feedback, right? In reality, negative feedback is supposed to say, okay, there is something that I'm failing at. And we do this very well in surgery. Our patient outcomes are very poor. You know, people are dying. What do we do with that information? We don't run away from it. We say, oh, we had a complication from a lab app. Oh my God, we're going to stop doing the lab apps. We don't do that. We take the information. We, you know, sift through it. We analyze it. We say, okay, why did we have a complication? Why did we have a bad outcome? We learn from that process and we get better. Negative feedback, that's what we're supposed to do with it, right? When someone tells you, you can't, you know, you can't do this in this institution. I, I had that problem with the hijab. Every hospital that I went to, you can't wear a hijab. Why can't wear I? Why, why can't I wear a hijab in the operating room? Oh, it's our policy. What policy is that? Oh, uh, I don't know. It's just we've never done it. Okay, <laughs> let's dig through it, right? So, anytime you get negative feedback, you got to figure out what the root cause is, right? Why is someone telling you that, right? A program director telling me, "Oh, you're never going to graduate because you're having kids." Why not? Oh, there's no maternity leave policy because nobody ever finished. Why is that, right? You got to figure out what the problem is, what the underlying problem is, so that you can find something to do about. You can you can find something to do something about, right? Yeah. Because if we keep like we don't, that's what I teach women. Do you feel like a lot of women? Do you feel like a lot of them just want to avoid that conflict? That every they, person wants to avoid that. Every person wants to avoid that. Like recently I had this conversation with a, with a vascular surgeon who's been practicing for a very long time. And um, I, I, I put up uh, something about the, um, the uh, AORN, which is Association of OR Nurses, who makes the standard um, OR attire guidelines for um, all the hospitals in the nation. Um, we put headscarves in there that, you know, a religious headscarf, whether it's a hijab, a turban, bonnet, whatever religion you are, if you wear a headscarf, it should be accommodated in every operating room. I put it on there, she found it, and she said, oh my God, for many years, every hospital that I've gone to, they told me I couldn't wear the hijab and I never wanted to have that, that confrontation, right? People avoid confrontation, people avoid negative feedback. So if we are able to teach people how to confront things, not in a confrontational way, but to, but to approach it 
in a very systematic, organized way to say, no, question the system and say, this is not right. There are other ways for us to, to you know, uh, it's, it's basically problem solving, right? There are ways for us to figure this out. How can we make things better? That's how change happens. Change is very uncomfortable, right? People avoid things that make them uncomfortable. Change is one of those. Racism is one of those. Sexism is one of those things. Accommodating anybody that's different is one of those things. So do you think, though, that someone, like I said, of intersectionality, if they do this, even if they do this in a very systematic way, do you feel like people build a different narrative around that person than if a cis white dude were to say, hey, look, we need to change the system this way or another. He's a he's a game changer. Going to disrupt this. He's of a disruptor. Course. But like, are you... He but, gets all the glory and oh my God, yeah. he's an innovator. He's how innovative. He gets Disruptor. nominated for awards. Oh, they're they're problematic. They're, there's a problem. If like if they're problematic. If, yeah. Yeah. Are we let's be real. For to be problematic, it takes a lot for, for a cis white male to get that far though. You know, you know, I, I say one thing about race and oops, she problematic. But you know, my my one of my closest friends in this program can say whatever he wants. They're like yeah, man, he's he's so woke. He's he's on the cutting edge. And I'm saying, <laughs> like, I, I said the same. He, he's like, like, we're I holding the that. same sign. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like my sign says what his sign says. Like, but, uh, um, boy, I I really benefit from this privilege. I got to tell you guys, it's great. <laughs> um, so you know, in, in the last year, I've been hearing a lot from doctors all over the country, um, and. They, I've never seen this kind of burnout, you know, because the show, I get a lot of messages from people from all different forms of medicine, not just frontline workers. I mean, people outpatient stuff, and I've just never seen it like this. And it's almost like there's this almost universal existential crisis that's happening amongst almost all doctors. They're all considering other things. They're considering whether or not they're in the right place. They're considering whether or not they even want to be in clinical medicine, et cetera. Do you guys feel that they're is a disproportionate number of women or minorities that are talking about switching specialties or changing their residencies or changing their jobs after this last year in particular? Um, I feel that I can't say for sure, just because, you know, I've, I've only really been practicing medicine for just under five years now. Um, but from what I've seen, I mean, I agree with you. There's just collective, just burnout and exhaustion. And I, that plays out from, um, you know, the pandemic's mishandling to, um, you know, the, the disrespect and, you know, for healthcare workers. And, you know, um, I think that's one whole part of it. I think there's another part of it of just being like, disillusioned with our jobs um with i think and that came out with all the mishandling of everything and seeing a lot of hospitals treat us like <laughs> in like you know like kind of just cogs in a wheel and realizing that you know they don't care about us um but i think specifically from the level of all of that that you bring in race or you bring in gender and or you know sexual orientation and you bring in a, a group of people that have a level of burnout from life, you know, that are constantly putting one foot in front of the other, trying to survive um, and, you know, watching all these people around them get to take life on and then have all these problems and get to ignore two thirds of their identity. Mm -hmm. So I think what I have seen in the last year has been in many ways inspiring was people who left academia because they were had enough. And so they created their own organizations or they went to the community um, or they went and, and followed their passion outside of medicine. And I think um, I love that for them. Um, and I think as, as someone who is still very much grappling with their place in academia and medicine, um, I understand that point. And I wonder if at some point I will get there um, because there's definitely days where I'm just like, I just, I don't want to deal with this. I would love to walk into work and just take care of my patients. Like, and that's, that's what I would love to do, but that's not how the world works. So knowing that there's another option, 
I mean, you bring up a really good point that there is this added minority stress. Um, Dr. Chase Anderson talked to us a, a while back about minority stress in of itself. And then on top of that, everything else that's been happening. You know, they talk about in social media, it's like people present their best selves, right? They present all the good and or mostly the good, but, but, um, you know, there are a lot of people who have left academia and maybe are facing very similar challenges, right? I mean, it's not like you leave this academia bubble and everything is just as you want it to be. And these issues with intersectionality and all the challenges that come with it suddenly disappear. And I just wonder um, when the sexiness of achieving health equity dies down, but we're still here. Like are people, A, are people gonna care? B, are those same struggles gonna creep up again? Like, you know, it's still hard out, out outside of academia, right? It's not like it's, it's so, I, so I just wonder, you know, I wonder what, it, what it's like outside of it. I don't plan on leaving it, but I just wonder, you know, for those who have left it and maybe have not been so successful, like what are they doing? So I, um, I, I trained in academia. Um, I trained at Baylor and I had one interview um, at an academic center and, and that was it for me. I, I, I decided I was not gonna practice in academia at all. And so I went out and worked for a corporation for about four and a half years until, um, you know, I, I was told and I was mentored <laughs> very well that I was working, I was going to work for the big bad wolf um, but it was, you know, it was a great first job, great, um, schedule with, you know, having kids and whatnot. And I learned very quickly that we are all cogs in a wheel and we're all interchangeable in the eyes of big corporations. And I actually left that job. I, I, I resigned, gave my 60 day notice because I, um, decisions that I was making was, was, um, were being changed by a non-clinician. Right. They would make decisions, medical decisions and not put their name in the chart. Um, and, you know, when when um, meconium hits the fan, as pediatric surgeons would say. Um, <laughs> I'm going to bleep that out. I'm going to bleep it out so nobody knows what you said. And it's going to sound like you said something really dirty. I'm going to bleep that out. I'm just going to bleep out every now and then, Dr. Hussain, when you talk, I'm going to bleep things out so people think you're just dropping, like, curse words constantly. Do drop F-bombs. I do drop F-bombs. At one point, I was called Dr. F, so. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Don't be surprised. But, but so, the reason I'm telling you guys the story is there is stuff, there is stuff outside of medicine, outside of academia, that is very powerful and, and, um, and works and academia, like we, when we train in academia, we are not taught that there are other options outside of academia. I'm currently in a private practice um, and a majority of our surgeons are non-white, right? The white people are a minority. Um, we are from all over the globe. Um, we do trauma, we do general surgery, we do robotics, we do research, um, we have a residency, um, but we're not affiliated with a big academic institution, right? We do everything that is in academia, um, but without the politics and the nonsense of academia. And it is absolutely beautiful. Like when I was working in, um, for a big, you know, big box um, uh, corporation, there are times when I figured, oh, if, if I'm not working here, I, and the only if the only other option is to go back to academia, I got to find other things to do. And now I'm like, I look forward to going to work because it is amazing, right? Yeah. And so I think that's one of the things that we need to start normalizing is that there are more things outside of academia. It's not mm -hmm. academia or not or, or, or you know um, or nothing else is not it. Um, and I wish, like, I, sh I share what I do and like how my group is structured with as many people as I can and try to steer people away from all those big um, corporations. But, you know, right now they're, they're starting residencies, right? Um, they're um, training residents outside of academic institutions and in these big corporations. Mm -hmm. um, and they're all, they're taking over and buying up hospitals and practices. So, we need we need to, we need to enable or um, empower people to to pursue um, private practice um, and 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 have that as an option. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah well. I definitely agree. I think that we do not sell life outside of academia. If you're training in an academic setting is, is a true possibility or in many ways, sometimes we sell it as a failure. Um, you know, so yeah. I think, and I think that's why it colors it, you know, it seems like such a small encompassing world and it colors it that way. Um, yeah. yeah. It's so much better. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I think just the one thing I was going to say is like when health equity is no longer sexy. I think we're honestly just like when, you know, we were out, everybody was out there marching for George Floyd. I, I called it, I was like six months from now, everyone's gonna be like, why are we still doing this? And, you know, same thing with health equity. I was like, few months ago, I was like, people will get tired of us talking about this and that. And, you know, it's the problem is, is the same people who are truly out there doing the work are the ones burning out. But it's because that just, you know, it's to me, health equity is always going to be something important because but I came into medicine with that being important to me. And, And so I think, you know, there's this idea is these, these ebbs and flows of popularity, like that's, and to me, that's what I'm finding in the sense of, you know, seeing these people leave academia, whether or not they're going in the private route or they're going into, they're creating their own institutions or whatever. Um, just knowing that there's a possibility for me to pursue health equity outside of the the ivory tower um, and the, the rigidity and the politics and bureaucracy of, of academia is, is just something that I can keep in the back of my pocket. The world is your oyster, my young friend. I'm, I'm jealous of your youth and what you can do with it. All right. We should close up at this point. Uh, Dr. Balzora, please tell people where they can find you and tell them a little bit about the ABGH. Oh, thank you. So um, the Association of Black Gastroenterologists and Hepatologists, or ABGH, uh, was founded in February 2021 uh, by a group of 11 GIs, hepatologists, physician scientists, and um, it was really about an urgency. Uh, There's only about 400 practicing Black gastroenterologists in the U.S., which is entirely not enough um, when you think about all of the disparities in uh, GI-related cancers and whatnot. So um, we have been very excited, very enthusiastic um, group, and, um, you know, we've really taken off. And so you can find us on Twitter or uh, Instagram at uh, Black and Gastro and check out our website, blackandgastro.org to find out more about us um, and to donate, of course. Um, <laughs> and you can find me uh, on Twitter, Instagram at Sophie Belzora MD. Excellent. I'm waiting for my shirt. Dr. McElroy. <laughs> I'm not, not going to lie. I definitely felt that he was like, I don't know if anybody's in a sorority, but uh, I'm a proud sorority member. And I definitely felt like I was definitely getting a pitch for a sorority. So. <laughs> I tried so hard. Nobody would take me. You have no idea how much I wanted to be in a sorority. Um, I was just, you know, I was having flashbacks just now, you know, January 13th, 1913, 22 women felt a need to leave. I was like, oh, snap. Uh, <laughs> we're here. We're here. It's, it's happening here. It's happening here. Um, uh, Dr. McElroy, please tell people where yes. they can find you as well. Yes, uh, you can find me on Twitter at IE McElroy. That's M-C-E-L-R-O-Y. Um, and then on Instagram at Sumbayaso. S-O-M-E-P-A-Y-A-S-A-S-Y-A-S-O. <laughs> and Dr. Hussein. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hussein one Q-A-A-L-I-H-U-S-S-E-I-N-1. And I'm on Instagram at Dr. Hussein. Thank you all so much for joining. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it, guys. It was nice to meet you, ladies. Yes, nice to meet you. And thank you so much for having us. This was a blast. Nice to meet you guys. This is this was a blast. I'm always happy to be back on this podcast. Excellent. Hubby, Hubby, we'll keep going back. A, you're gonna take a um, snapshot thing. Yeah, let's do that. That's a good idea. You guys mind if I take a photo? I'm glad I wore my like, like, snapshot thing. You just so look cool. like look like thoughtful. Mm-hmm. What, what? What? Oh, that's a really good point. Brilliant, Kabe. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Good. Uh, thank you, guys. That was really that was really fun. Thank you so much. Hello, Kabe. How are you? Good. I'm gonna practice my Farsi slash Arabic. Salam alaikum. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. How are you? Oh my God! So much better than me. I can't do it. Forget it. <laughs> I tap out. I tap out. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified healthcare provider for your specific healthcare needs or concerns. 
The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.